When I was a child, we used to play a, uh, a game called musical chairs. Remember that? Musical chairs, we used to do it at the birthday parties, things like that. For those of you who uh, have forgotten or maybe never, uh, you know, never played this game, basically, you'd play the music, usually a record or the radio, something like that, and uh, you'd set up a bunch of chairs, and the kids would march around the chair, round and round the chair. And all of a sudden, the music would stop, very suddenly, and everyone would scramble to get a chair, to sit in a chair and not be left standing. You see, the game was set up in such a way that there was always one less chair than players. So if there were 12 kids, there were only 11 chairs. If there were 15 kids, only 14 chairs. So there's always one, one person going to be left standing. So when the music stopped and everyone sat quickly in a chair, one person would be left standing and thus eliminated from the game. And then each time we had a round, we'd remove a chair. Keep removing a chair, a chair, a chair. Play the music. Someone would be left standing, remove a chair, keep going down until there was only two people left in one chair. And they'd be running around. You know how fun it is. They'd be hanging onto that chair, you know, and kind of sort of sitting in it as they'd go around, you know, until the music would go. And then finally, you know, if the music stopped, you you happen to be, you know, in the chair, you won the game, and there was always a prize or something like that. Well, believe it or not, I see a parallel between this little game of musical chairs and what the writer of Hebrew, the letter to the Hebrews in the Bible, says in his book, chapter 9, verse 27. He says in this passage, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Do you see the parallel? I mean, stamped all over it. See, this passage teaches that one day life will stop suddenly and all persons will be judged. All And the, uh, the operative words there, all persons will be judged. Everybody judged. Every single person judged. Are you starting to see the similarities yet? Let me explain it to you. The music is life. And so long as there is life, we are happily marching around. Death comes when the music suddenly stops and we all stop marching. And the judgment is like the chairs. When the music stops, everybody has to take a chair. Now the difference is that in the judgment, there is a specific chair for everyone. And everyone will have to sit in his or her chair when the music stops and the judgment comes. Now, as far as the judgment goes, everyone in the world will have to sit in one of these five chairs. This morning, using these chairs that I've gathered up in the office, I'd like to explain to you what the five chairs of judgment represent. And as I was going through this morning, greeting some of the members, people were looking at the chairs, they were picking out their chair. And they were saying, well, which chair should I pick? And I said, well, I, you wait till the sermon. You're not going to leave early. <laughs> and I did say to them, be careful, however, which chair you pick. So let's talk about the chairs of judgment. Chair number one is this one over here, this, this brown chair, this uh, secretarial chair, usually used in an office or something. It kind of swivels around. 
get a good view of all kinds of things. This chair right here is reserved for pagans. Pagans going to sit in that chair. You know what I mean by pagans? Those who do not know Jesus Christ and worship as God a variety of other things. For example, pagans worship the flesh or the things and pleasures of this world exclusively. We call them hedonists. Hedonists are pagans. Or maybe they worship godless philosophies in the sense that some philosophy that doesn't take God into account is the thing that drives their life. That's paganism. Or they worship their ancestors. Or they worship the creation itself in some way. Today we call the creation the environment. Or they worship various deities, myths, magic, the occult. Or they refuse to worship anything at all. We call them atheists, still pagan. This chair is a proper representation of this group. I mean, this group, this group of pagans, they're into everything and nothing. You know, go left, go right, go back, go round and round and round. They just are into every little thing. They're mobile, you know. They're ready to believe just anything that goes by. That's, that's their chair. They're comfortable. They're mobile. But their souls are as dark as the fabric on that chair. And the Bible explains their judgment. In Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 30, it says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. What's the judgment? Repent and reject these false gods and accept Christ, the man through whom God will judge and everyone in the world because Jesus and faith in Him is going to be the standard measure by which genuine religion and faith will be measured by God. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, verse 6. Now you're free to reject that. You're free to disbelieve that, but you cannot deny that that's what Jesus said. And so the pagan's judgment is very clear. There is no salvation apart from Christ. You can swirl around and, and roll around all you want, but there's only one person that can save you. Of course, in the Bible there is judgment and there is hope. And so there's hope for the pagan also. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ. And so this is why we do mission work and this is why we evangelize because without the gospel, there's no hope. And so the majority of the people in the world today will sit in that chair. As the Bible says, the fields are wide unto harvest and we need to pray that God will send more workers out to convert those who do not know Christ, because without Him there is no hope. This chair, this black swivel chair, lean back, adjust, armrest, this chair is reserved for the doubters. The doubters are going to sit in this chair. Those who have heard of Christ and know the gospel 
but have not yet responded to it. Most are affiliated with some form of religion, even Christian religion in one way or another, through their parents or through their culture. They have a religious component in their life, but they're not really under the lordship of Christ. If they go to the hospital to give blood or to receive blood, they fill out the form and they say, what religion are you? Well, they check off a box. But they've not obeyed his word in order to be saved. They don't live as disciples of Christ. They know about him, but he is not the center. He's not the focus. He's not the leader of their lives. And this black armchair that swivels really indicates well their spiritual condition and will probably seat them a judgment. Now, they're more comfortable than the pagans. I, I, I would sit in it, but I'd be afraid to fall forward here. It's right on the edge. This chair here is a lot more comfortable than this one. I mean, you can lean back, you can adjust it up or down, you can go around, you can rest your elbows on it. Very comfortable chair. And it's indicative of the doubters because they think they know about religion. See what I'm saying? They're comfortable. They're mobile. They've got, you know, pneumatic lifts up and down. They know about religion. But they are in worse darkness than the pagans because they feel self-assured about their knowledge. The doubters do. The blackness of their chair is an indication of the darkness of their condition. Now the Bible explains the judgment of the doubters back in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Beginning in, uh, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 12, rather. Beginning in verse, um, in verse 30. Jesus says the following. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Again, plain words from the Lord. You're, you're either with me or you are against me. There is no middle ground. And then in Matthew chapter 10, this time, verse 32, again Jesus says the following, Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Those who refuse to be his disciples now cannot hope to be with God in heaven. It's not enough just to know about Jesus. What he demands is a commitment as a disciple and nothing less. Of course, there is hope for doubters too. Again, Jesus says in Mark 16, 16, that those who believe and are baptized will be saved. Jesus tells us what we must do in order to cross over from doubt to faith. We need to believe, meaning we need to accept as true the claims of Christ And we need to obey Him. In this passage here, Jesus talks about baptism, to be immersed in His name. Now, this isn't the total Christian life, but it is the first step, and for doubters, the first step is usually the most difficult step. Faith doesn't require that we understand everything. It asks us to accept as true what God has said based on what He has shown us. And He has shown us many things. He has shown us His creative power. He has revealed Himself in Christ. 
He has given us His Word. He's given us plenty to base our faith upon. I think that doubters misunderstand the working of faith. Understand how faith works. It works in this way. It is obedience that leads to greater understanding, not the other way around. We don't say to God, you make me understand everything, then I will obey. That's not how it works. That's not faith. When we humbly obey God in faith, we will increasingly open our eyes to the truth. Not the way it works in the world, but it's the way it works in the kingdom of God. We don't demand enlightenment from God. God gives us this gift based on our faith expressed in humble obedience. Now the majority of the people in this city, San Diego City, are going to sit in this chair. Because they know and they identify with Christianity, but they have not made any personal commitment to be disciples of Jesus Christ through humble obedience. Chair number three. This chair. I know a lot of people pick this chair. This chair is reserved for cold Christians. Cold Christians. It's reserved for those who have heard and believed and repented. They've been baptized. They've begun to follow Jesus. But because of pressure from others, whether it be family or friends, because of the love of this beautiful world, sin and money and just plain old being busy, because of carelessness with their faith, because they haven't nourished their faith from the Word and from fellowship and service and worship, because they haven't done that, they have begun to grow cold and have abandoned the Lord and His church. I want to tell you something. Remember, if you abandon the church, you abandon the Lord, because the Lord and the church are one. Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus Christ is the head of the body. If you abandon the body, you've abandoned the head. Now, this chair looks pretty good. It's well-appointed, it's comfortable. But it represents well the cold Christian, not by its upholstery, but by its emptiness. You see, the beautiful empty chair speaks judgment against the one who had a favored position with God, seated at the right hand of God with Christ, but abandoned his place for the love of the world. And there is a judgment awaiting for these. The Hebrew writer speaks of these in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. He says, For if we, meaning we Christians, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I know enough 
to be afraid of those words. I know, and I, there are people who know more Bible than I do. But I know enough to be afraid of the words, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I know enough to understand that. It is a worse judgment for the Christian who has abandoned the Lord because for this person there is no peace here on earth. I mean, the unfaithful Christian always knows that he or she has done and what they've done and they know what awaits them in the future. How can there be peace for someone who in abandoning or neglecting their faith has in effect despised the sacrifice of Christ on his behalf? How can you have peace knowing that you've rejected the Son of God? How can you sleep at night knowing you've insulted the Holy Spirit, left empty His seat with Christ at the right hand of God? But there is hope, even for the one who is in this predicament. In Revelation chapter 2, in verses 4 and 5, Jesus in speaking to the church at Ephesus says the following, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the things that you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. There is hope even for the cold Christian. Remember how you were at the beginning, and remove the thing, remove the person, remove the attitude that is causing the spiritual cancer that's killing you. You see, coldness is as much a sign of spiritual death as it is a sign of physical death. When you come upon a scene of an accident or someone who's ill, and if they're starting to get very cold, you know that death is imminent. It is the same warning for the Christian. When they, when you start getting to be cold to God and the things of God and to His church and His Word, when you start being cold to those things, then it's a sign that spiritually you're dying. There are some in this very congregation who have fallen away from faith and the church and who will sit in this chair. I can't speak for the city of the world, but I can speak for this church. I've been here long enough to know that. They need to repent. They need to be restored. Not just think about doing it someday, but actually do it and do it as soon as possible. Chair number four. Chair number four, this lovely old rocking chair, is reserved for lukewarm Christians. It represents Christians whose greatest efforts for the Lord are in the past, and their present efforts are centered around avoiding any spiritual discomfort. Rocking along. They live in the comfort zone. They never move away from the comfort zone. Here's what I mean about the comfort zone Christians. These are brothers and sisters who rationalize their sins and blame others for their problems. They only do something if they got to do it. They rarely take the initiative to serve others, but do spend a lot of time complaining if they're not served properly. The rocking chair Christians are happy to remain at the same level of knowledge, same level of giving, same level of service, same level of commitment, right on to the end. They don't understand that Christianity is a process. It's a transformation where if you don't grow, you die spiritually. That's how it works. Their attitude is that as long as their faith isn't inconvenienced, as long as it doesn't cost anything too much, 
they will follow Christ. But they're going to follow Him sitting down. The problem with rocking chair Christians is that they're usually the ones that block growth in the church. They hate change because change is inconvenient and they are devoted to comfort. They talk about growth, about stepping out in faith, but are never willing to risk the effort and pain to accomplish it. So they rock and talk, and the only effort they ever make is to block any initiative that will change their comfort status quo. They only really get fired up if someone threatens to get them out of the rocking chair. The Bible graphically describes their judgment. In Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. One of the most severe judgments in the Bible reserved for those who are hypocrites in the church. Why? Why isn't Jesus saving this for adulterers or thieves or murderers? But one of the most obvious reasons is that they gladly accept the blood of Christ but refuse to carry His cross. At least those who are cold openly reject Christ. The hypocrites pretend that they do so openly, but secretly they don't do and they don't try and they don't serve anything more than anyone else does. And yet, and yet, in His mercy, God offers hope even to those who sin in this way. There's always hope. Romans chapter 3, uh, Romans, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I soft to anoint your eyes that you may see. God says to the, the person in the rocking chair, open your eyes and see yourself for what you really are. Stop fooling yourself because you're not fooling God and probably not fooling the church either. You know, it's sad to say, but there are probably some here this morning who are heading for this chair when judgment comes. Because they're going to hear me you're going to know I'm talking about them. And they're not going to do a thing about it. Well, maybe they won't talk to me for a long time. It's sad to say. It's sad to say. Chair number five. Chair number five. If you can't see it back there, I'll hold it up for you. Chair number five is this old metal folding chair which I wanted to throw away, but Roy didn't. <laughs> this chair here is reserved for hot Christians. Hot and zealous Christians, that's the chair for them. It represents those Christians whose lives match their beliefs. They do believe that Jesus is God, and so they receive instruction from Him regularly. They talk with Him often. They serve Him daily. They make every effort to obey Him. They are committed to these things. They treat His name and His word and His work and especially His people with love and with respect. They are eager for others to know Him. There are no, you know what? There are no missionaries that ever come from any of these chairs. No missionaries come from 
the people in, sitting here. And no, no, certainly no missionaries ever come from the people sitting in this chair. There are no fools for Christ in any of these chairs up here, these four. No fools for Christ, no sir. These people are much too smart to be fools for Christ. These type of Christians make sure that no one loses their faith because of their words or their behavior. This chair represents these type of Christians very well. It's portable. It's ready to travel. It's made for someone who's not here for very long. It's well used. It's battered. It's not an object to look at, but something to, 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 to serve. It's not designed for comfort or for rocking in, but rather for a short rest between periods of work and struggle. If I could have found another chair, I would have gone to a boxing club and gotten a little stool that boxers sit in in the corner. You know that little stool they pull out and they put in the corner of the ring where the, where the fighter sits down for about a minute in between rounds? I would have put that stool there. I think it would have been even a better image. The people in this chair are not afraid of judgment. I go back to our original verse in Hebrews. Chapter uh, chapter 9, thing that we read at the very beginning. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, the writer says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. They have no fear of God's judgment because they are eager for the Lord to come so they can rest from their labor and be with Him always. Their judgment will mean freedom from sin, will mean an end to their struggle in the name of Christ. These Christians have a special hope of hearing the blessed words of welcome from the Lord. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 23, where He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And so for the hot Christian, the judgment will not be a revelation. It will not be a surprise. It will not be a condemnation. It will be a sweet invitation to be with God forever and ever and ever. And I dare say there are many here today who belong in this chair. And I praise and thank God for, for them. And so there they are, the five chairs of judgment. So long as we're here on earth, the music continues to play and we march around the chair. We live our lives, we go about our business, we take care of family matters, we plan our future. But suddenly, life will stop. And brothers and sisters, you know that it surely will. And every one of us will have to sit down in one of these chairs. So long as the music plays, we still have time to choose which chair that we will sit in. But when the music stops, the choice will be gone. If the music of your life stops this very instant, which chair would you be sitting in? Which chair would you be sitting in? Which chair would you be sitting in? Which chair would you be sitting in?